This is Ed Cohen, your broadcast host today on Global Radio Talk Show, a broadcast service of globalbusinessnews.net, Global HR News. Our very special guest today is Dr. Natalie Forrest, a well-known speaker and author and coach. Natalie, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? What's your day job? Honestly, my day job is being a mom. But my other day job is, of course, helping people in all life situations be leaders of their own life and live their life their way. And that includes living their business their way. And so Mm. that's pretty much what I do on a daily basis every minute of the day, and I'm loving it. We're going to be talking about some qualities of being a leader in business primarily, but I guess this uh, can appeal to anything in life, right? Absolutely. I mean, other people smarter and uh, longer around than me have already been saying that first and foremost, we're all leaders of our own lives. We're CEOs of our own lives. And when we approach leadership from that perspective, First, our own lives, leading by example in life, in work, in jobs, in business, then leadership becomes much more tangible. And it's not something that we're trying to aspire to somewhere out out there in, in la la land. It is very, very feasible and tangible for all of us. So tell me about performance. This is this kind of a nebulous word. <laughs> I mean, it's got a million, a million meanings, you know, touchy-feeling. But in performance, is this a result of being trained to perform, or is it something that is within all of us? I think for that, I need to give a twofold answer, <laughs> partially because I want to say it is in all of us. And at the same time, it can also be trained. And so let me explain what I mean by that. Mm, Part of what I do is I consider myself a revolutionary because of the way that I see things. And so when looking at performance, it is once again a daily thing in our own lives. How do we perform every single day personally in our relationships with ourselves? And then you take it outside the home, outside your own personal space, and you begin to ask, well, how do we perform at the job as a leader, as a CEO, and as a team member? And as it turns out, the performance that you provide at your work, whether it's your passion and you're in charge of it or you're having a job, is directly tied to the values that you have, what you have been taught, And, of course, the whole circumstances that you're in. So what I mean by that is if you are not performing well and respecting yourself on a daily basis, knowing your standards, knowing what you can do, what you're great at, and what you're not so great at, then it is much harder for you to perform at a high level at whatever job function you are currently engaging in. And so if you don't know yourself, your performance will most likely not match your values. 
So and, let's get into that yeah. mm-hmm. by know thyself. It sounds biblical. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It is very simple. One example, I don't like accounting. I love accountants, but I don't like fiddling with numbers. So for me, even though I could do it, I don't do my own accounting. I outsource it. So I know my weakness. If I were, and I used to do this, do my own accounting, it would take me hours. It would take me hours to do simple things that an accountant who loves what they do would do in half an hour. So if I were to perform as my own accountant, I would not be doing a good job. At the same time, I also have to know myself in that I have to find people that I can trust, that I can be honest with, that I can be vulnerable with. So I can go to my accountant and say, I don't know where to put this. Can you help me? And afterwards, of course, I will look back over it. I know my weak spots. I know where I shine. And instead of performing a task, literally performing it in the sense of theater, just playing that role instead of having my heart in it, I will not be good at it. And that is what we see a lot at the workplace. That is where human resources comes in, where teams come in. What, what are the jobs that people have been assigned and do they match their strength? Or is it just a job that they're supposed to do because that task was just opened up. I see in your writing, you talk about hidden power of patterns. So so this is what, internal DNA? Oh, internal DNA. I like that term. I never thought of it that way. I think more it's it's an internal guidance system. So I call it my IGS. And the patterns are actually things that we have been taught while growing up. And most of those patterns that I refer to by the hidden power are really the subconscious patterns, things that we grew up hearing our parents say, things we grow up and even nowadays we see on TV, things that society puts labels on, because we do have something that is called performance evaluation, and it's a standard that is out there. It's a category. It's a label. But if we don't associate with those values or if something in the back of our head subconsciously keeps stopping us, then we can never achieve that high standard that we have. So, for example, if a child keeps hearing, for whatever reason, that they are not good writers, oh, it doesn't look pretty, you don't sound that great, would that kid that is now growing up to be an adult going to college ever believe that he or she can actually successfully write a great college paper or later on may write a book about their experiences? So they're not sure usually why they can't write very well. But they have been convinced by teachers, by themselves, that they are not good writers. So they will forever hold themselves back on writing. They're stuck in that inner loop. And whenever somebody says, 
oh, you can write this in the back of their head, that pattern pops up saying, no, you can't. Remember, everybody's always told you you're a bad writer. And those are the patterns as well as values that we have seen. If mom and dad have always had a certain type of job, why would you dare to go higher than that? And we see that a lot in society as well. On the flip side of that, why does everybody need the corner office? Not everybody is, is made for it, and not everybody likes the responsibility that comes with it. But it's something in the back of our head, the patterns, um, the constant bombardment of what we should be doing with that moral inclination of should. And unless we get to the pattern in the back of our head, most people are not not even satisfied. They're not, not happy. And we see that. Because if you look at Gallup polls, it tends to tell us how unhappy, how disengaged, and sometimes actively disengaged employees are. I mean, last time I looked, it was at a rate of 85% disengaged employees. And that has to do with their own patterns, patterns of their team members, patterns of their leaders, and those values never really be in a draft. So I wanted to go a little deeper mm-hmm. about how-tos, okay? So how do you revolutionize your life? How do you revolutionize? You take a break, you hit the brakes, you close the doors, and you look at where am I, and most importantly, is this my life? Because only people who know that there is more will ask that question. And when you're sitting there and you're looking out the window with your coffee, with your tea, whatever you may be having, and you're realizing that you feel like a robot, you feel like you're always on autopilot, that's the time to close the doors and say, okay, I need to figure out what am I doing? And that is often a very difficult step for people. We're so socially engaged in in all sorts of things to make us feel more confident and happier and better. So closing the door and saying, I am going to take me time is really difficult in a world where that would be considered egocentric. Now, when you are by yourself, and you can do this, by the way, from love, right? I mean, you don't have to cut everybody out. You just lovingly tell people that I need some time to figure out what I'm doing. It's, It's not a midlife crisis. It's just a regrouping of sorts. And you start looking at your life. There are worksheets or processes that I use, and some, of course, are also used by other coaches, where you start looking at where am I happy in my life, where am I not happy, and where was I happy? So I add the component of really taking a look at all of your life, all of your relationships, and where with what relationship and with what activities were you the happiest? And that's kind of important because that leads you to your passion and your talents and ultimately to your potential. And if you don't live your potential, you cannot provide high performance. 
at that point, then you need to decide because we do live in the real world. You know, we have bills to pay. But at that point, you need to decide if you can turn your passion into your full-time activity or whether you are going to remain at a job, at a position that allows you in your free time to engage with your passion. And those are steps that you really can to some degree do by yourself with worksheets, with guidance. However, I personally, and I've gone through this process, I mean, I'm, I'm telling everybody what I have done. And so uh, it is usually better to have somebody on the outside assist with that. And what I mean by that is somebody who helps you identify some of those patterns. Then once you have identified some of those, and they can be very simple. For example, it can be words that may trigger you. Why is that? That's always a very good indication that there's something in your subconscious. For me, for example, it's the word cute. Um, I grew up and I was called cute. And there was a certain uh, component to it that just made me cringe. So when I hear today, oh, you look so cute, I I'm ready to explode, of course. I have taken steps to identify that, but sometimes it can be words. And the question is, what are you going to do with that? So you then put a system in place, and this is where you may need the help of loved ones or my favorite sticky notes all over the place, where a red flag in your mind is being created. When somebody says to me nowadays, oh, that dress is cute. I don't freak out anymore. I don't get upset. I don't start yelling because I have trained myself when that word comes up to take a step back and see, okay, my pattern is based on my history. I don't like that word. Step two is what do they mean by it? Let me respect that person as the individual that they are with their background. And then I might understand it's a compliment. And I can say with loving kindness and understanding, thank you for that compliment. And those are, those are some simple steps in which you start getting to them. Um, you can do that without a psychiatrist, without a counselor, but you need some help and guidance to figure out where were you the happiest, how can you bring that back, and what is stopping you. And what is stopping you are those little things that, most of the time actually were given to you or witnessed by you from a loving perspective because your parents may have wanted to keep you safe, your teacher may have wanted you to excel, and that was the only way that they were able to do it. And then you add society to it from the way that we look to the cars that we're supposed to drive to the jobs that we're supposed to have. So it's just once you take the first step to say in, whose life am I living? you really begin to go back to the, you know, know thyself idea and you begin to appreciate yourself because we need to relearn to respect and appreciate ourselves. We, we give appreciation and recognition and respect to lots of other people. And when we don't, it is usually because we don't respect ourselves. You set the pattern here for us to learn more now. So let's go a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. How how to do this? How can you break out without crashing your life and then finding yourself out there 
somewhere, quote unquote, alone? Do you quit the job and then find yourself? Do you get a divorce and then go find yourself? Do you just, I mean, what do you do in order to begin? What's the first step? Yeah. So no to either of those. Uh, There's no drastic action needed unless you're in a dangerous situation. Okay. So the first step really is to take inventory. And again, I've done this myself where I said, I need some time and I started very slowly. So the first step is let everybody around you know that you need some me time. And then set the me time, whether it is half an hour with a bubble bath, uh, half an hour reading a book, but you need to start a new pattern of behavior in which you give yourself time and learn to be comfortable with yourself. So we definitely want to go to the next levels, but interpretation. I mean, you know, people get upset with Mm -hmm. what they think they're hearing. They jump to defense and strike out without thinking through, in many cases, not all the cases, they don't think through what the other person is meaning. They just react on instinct to something. And then that creates more anxiety, doesn't it? Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head because that's the tricky part. That's where if you are realizing you want to figure out whose life you're living and make yourself more happy, you really need to communicate that in a way that comes from love, respect, and understanding. So you're not telling people, I hate you, I don't like you anymore, I need my time, but you're going to try and explain it to them. You're just going to say, I've noticed that I'm a bit stressed, that I'm a bit unhappy, I need to figure out why, so I need 30 minutes every day to myself. And you will notice that when I have had the 30 minutes and I come back out, I'll be much, much easier to deal with. So that would be communication 101. How do you present it to another person by taking full responsibility and also advising them that you're not trying to leave them behind or anything like that? Now we get to what you were just mentioning. What if the other person reacts in a certain way? And I have to be honest, if they are completely not understanding and not willing, then most likely it's the wrong person. At least the wrong person for right now. Most people, when I consult, coach with leaders or individuals, they try that and their spouse, partner, mother, daughter, whatever it is, may be a little upset, but they're trying. So. They will continue because for years and years and years, they've been in this pattern of just you not having any alone time. You're not having any downtime. And I mentioned this in in an example uh, in my book where most of us have that one person that calls us once a week, the same day, the same time. They're so used to it. And what we do is we pick up the phone and we're really not present. So now, If we're telling that person, I really respect you and I enjoy our chats, but for the next few weeks, I will need some alone time. So I will not be picking up the phone because when I talk to you, I would like to be fully present and really hear what you're saying. 
So please don't be upset with me. I'll call you when I'm ready. Now, that person that calls you every Thursday at 10 a.m. will still call you every Thursday at 10 a.m. because that's how they've been trained. The responsibility is now on you. Do you pick up the phone or not? And so it takes a lot of courage to some degree to do that. And however the other person reacts is a sign for you how you need to deal with them. Some people or most people will be very, very surprised because they know and love us the way that we are. The minute we begin to make a change, they're a little concerned. They don't want to lose what they know because change for most people after childhood is something scary. During childhood, we change all the time. We love it. So the communication on how you approach it and then taking responsibility and being accountable for what you're saying is really, really crucial in this step-by-step process. And then later on, the people that you've advised that you need a little bit of time will actually understand and see the change that is occurring just by you being less stressed, just by you being happier from the inside out. And they either will want a piece of that or they are no longer part of your inner circle. So I want to tie this together with employees who are disengaged, Mm -hmm. according to all the surveys. There's a a lot of employees that are present but not engaged or just going through the motions. In other words, performance Mm -hmm. is being impacted. Organizations are being impacted by this presenteeism or whatever the right word is. So how do you apply the basic things, and I want to go deeper into performance and leadership, but from an individual human, I don't know, person-to-person thing, how can what you're saying be applied to communicating in the office? Because, you know, people are so different, and yet they all come together and work in a company or an organization. How can so many different personalities and backgrounds actually perform? And how does a good HR manager or a good leader grow to understand all of this and, and deal with the human aspects of managing people's lives? Or I guess people have to manage their own lives, but they still have to perform for the organization. So there's, there's missing links there, right? Absolutely. And I think that goes to the heart of leadership versus management. Mm. Uh, if we look at our employees, as capital, just in the word, there might be a challenge. Just going to put that out there because we don't really want to manage people like our uh, little pawns on, on, on a chessboard. We want to inspire them so that they will want to do their best. And so when it comes to an HR manager, the very first step is the human step. It's the idea that, yes, we actually need to see them as individuals. They have things that's going on in their lives that's probably impacting what they're experiencing right now. So first of all, get to know the employees. It sounds silly, but it is the most important aspect. You need to know who they are because if you understand who they are, and I, and I talk about that in my little aha book, 
increasing a health professional's performance, you need to let them know that they're human, that you care, and that you know them. Little things such as knowing whether or not their child may have a birthday coming up can make all the difference. Respecting the way that they do or fulfill their task, and by that I mean their desk may look crazy, but they get the work done. So appreciating everybody's individuality and then most of all, we need to make sure that those who are currently disengaged actually have tasks that coincide with their skills. And for that, it's usually good to have a team meeting to see, okay, what are we doing? What are we working on? And that goes, of course, from the manager, the leader, the HR leader, for example, downwards. It also involves all other aspects of the company, though. First of all, the CEO. The CEO also needs to be visible and not somewhere up there in an office. And the CEO needs to demonstrate and live the mission and the vision of the company so that slowly but surely the employees who are there are going to re-engage with the mission and the vision. We need to make sure that we're beginning to understand where does a team fall short and why. And most of the time it is because the patterns in every individual's head and the need to compete versus truly collaborate. And most of that is, again, related to things that are happening at home. So if the home is not all right, then we tend to perform less well on the job. If we get recognized on the job as individuals and recognized for the work that we do in ways that are appropriate for us, everything can be pretty quickly turned around. So we're talking about individuals and Mm -hmm. we're talking about a group, a team, maybe. (laughs) So um, going back to earlier when we talked about your uh, thought process of patterns, everyone Mm -hmm. has patterns that have been ingrained over the years uh, and that's how they do things, process things. and applying that to work, mm-hmm. thinking through, most people don't understand that they have patterns or, or they do understand, well, okay, I'm comfortable or I'm not comfortable doing certain things. That's part of the pattern idea, isn't it? Yes, it is. Absolutely. And so go, Yeah, go yeah. deeper on that because I'm just saying words here, but you know, what is it in reality? Well, I mean, the patterns are very simple. One example is when we get up in the morning, what's the first thing we do? And after a while, we're on autopilot. Every morning we get up, we fall over our slippers on the floor, we make the coffee, and we drink the coffee, and then we slowly wake up. That's on autopilot. This autopilot can continue sometimes, and this is more like like a little wake-up call almost, uh, you know, you're you're driving to 
a friend's place and it happens to be in the same direction as the grocery store. And all of a sudden you look up and you're at the grocery store that you usually go buy stuff. Or you always park in the same spot and you get upset when that same spot is not there. Those are the behavioral patterns that we can easily identify. And that's where we start. The other things that happen at the same time, when we get up in the morning and we look outside the window, here we're getting to the subconscious mindset. What's the first thing we say when we see the weather outside? Are we already going to say, oh, it's going to rain, it's going to be horrible? Now we're talking about subconscious patterns of why exactly is the rain bad? And all of those we now bring into the workplace. Plus, whatever ideas we have been manifesting in the back of our head about ourselves, low self-esteem, the idea that mom and dad and our friends and our spouse wants us to always be the best, so we're already under pressure. And how do we deal with all of those aspects? When more than one person feels just one of those things subconsciously, not to add stress to it because uh, a family member might be sick, and they all come together, they are already on edge when they come together. So we need to change the situation that they're meeting each other in. And that has a lot to do with just the individual understanding some of their patterns, understanding why they don't like the way that Joe I don't know, it hits the keys on the computer keyboard and they don't like the smell of Natasha's tea. So how can we deal with that? Because when you're already stressed and coming into work or coming home, simple things can magnify those and explode. So we need to create an environment where every member of a team respects each other for their individuality and an environment of trust where Natasha can come in and say, I'm just not feeling well today. This and this is going on without asking for a counseling session. This is going on. I would appreciate having some quiet today. And everybody else respecting that. But very often, especially in the world we live in right now, instead of walking over to the other person and saying good morning, People sit down at their desk, drink their coffee, and they start writing emails. They don't even go to the next office, which is one door down. They will write an email. Most of the time nowadays, we don't even pick up the phone anymore. When I was working years and years ago in the State Department, we had a power outage one day. It was, it was too funny. It was funny because nobody knew what to do. And I was walking around and starting to talk to people. Because we could still work without a computer, but everybody was so used to just typing each other, even if we're sitting directly across from each other. So we need to bring the human back into human resources and ask the team members for what they need. A few years ago, I think um, that was, would have been called appreciative inquiry. You know, ask what they want more of and then bring it together as a team. You cannot always bring an outside consultant in to tell them what to do. The outside consultant needs to figure out what they need and what they want and help facilitate it. Hmm. 
So how do you teach this? How do you teach this? You go in and, and, and you talk. <laughs> you do a workshop. First of all, you need to inspire people to be ready for this. And you need to bring the human aspect back and really address the leadership first of all and see, well, how are you leading? Are you leading or are you managing? Which one is it? And if you're managing, could we maybe modify this a little bit? We need to first make sure that the leader is self-confident enough to know his and her strengths and weaknesses to then be able to allow the team members to provide input. And then you bring the team members in. You first talk individually with the team members, see what's going on with them, and you bring it together. So first is always an assessment. How is the team performing? Where are there areas that could be improved? Why could that possibly be? You have the intake session. You follow up with the team members as well, as I said, with the leads. And then you design, based on that, some very specific action steps. And they usually mean that there have to be, I'm not necessarily saying weekly meetings, initially weekly meetings, but then bi-weekly meetings. And then a few months after that, you're going to have monthly meetings just for the team to talk for an hour. It doesn't take a long time. But you need to first set the processes in place and start it all out with an honest and open workshop discussion of this is where we are right now. We would like to improve that. We would like to increase your engagement. We would like for you to be more productive and happier when you come here. And we don't really want you to be sick all the time or after we've just trained you, you leave. What can we do? And have that be an open discussion so that we respect every member of the team and every member's ideas and let them know that they are valued. That's really one of the most important aspects. So is this all the same for males and females? Certainly men are from Mars. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? I, mean, I mean, really, how do you uh, gain mastery over your emotions at work or about people who are very different from you and yet you either have to work with them or you have to listen to them because they're the boss. <laughs> well, first of all, I would change the wording. <laughs> you know, I don't have to anything. <laughs> but, um, you know, you are, of course, correct. If there's a leader, then, you know, I have to follow what that leader says. So there is a little bit of a difference between men and women, but not as much as we think. The main difference is in the way that we've been taught for the last, I don't know, two, three, four hundred years. And I can say that from a historical background. So it really is that we tend to assume women are more nurturing and, and women cry more quickly and are more emotional. Those are all of our assumptions. While we, when we look at men, we tend to assume that uh, they're more direct, they can accept a compliment they can accept when they did something not so well and they are highly competitive those are usually the the two rooms in which we put people and if you really look at it that's incorrect there are plenty of men who are very nurturing there are plenty of women who are very competitive of course we have choice words for those usually 
So it's not as much men and women, it's really the individual's background. And changing or revolutionizing the culture a little bit. If we're always in a, in a competitive mode, then we are not able to respect each other and collaborate. If we understand that as part of a team, we can do so much more, then it's a different ballgame. And you set the parameters. It's just like when you have a regular meeting. You say, during this meeting, we're not going to use our cell phones. During this meeting, we're not going to do A, B, and C. It does everybody agree. So in a team, you set team standards that everybody agrees on. For example, if I'm coming in and I've had a fight with my husband, I will let you know I'm not doing good emotionally. Give me about an hour. And everybody understands and leaves me alone. If I come in and I say, I have real problems with this task, since can somebody help me? I'm not going to be laughed at, but they understand that my task is also crucial. So we're all going to sit down and try it together. And I will learn something from them. And they feel valued as well because they're able to help. Yeah. So it goes back to just the individual, really. So what about this aspect of either as a manager or leader, I guess primarily as a manager, delivering negative feedback or telling them somebody they're doing something wrong, and then, okay, how to do it, number one, and then how do you, on the other side, how do people, uh, how should people be trained to receive negative feedback at work generally, Mm -hmm. I guess anywhere in life, and then, I mean, how to deal with it without getting pissed off? (laughs) Well, first of all, we need to change the culture of telling our kids that they are the best in the world all the time and they are just fantastic because not everybody is fantastic at everything. So I think it's a cultural change, number one, that you're asking for because we've really been, you know, I'm saying that as a mom, (laughs) sometimes we just pamper the kids too much where they're not responsible for their actions. And so that is is a little bit of of a mind flex issue. As a leader, You can tell somebody that, in general, their work is good, but that was not okay the way that they turned in the report. It had too many grammatical errors or whatever in it. You need to be honest about it. At the same time, when you're honest about it, you need to ask the employee if they are aware on why this happened. I'm not talking about the sandwich method at all because everybody knows when that's coming, but we need to really hear from the employee. We need to say, okay, I saw this report. It's a really bad report. You're missing half the analysis. The grammar is not good, but normally you don't do this. So what's going on? And then allow the employee, number one, to explain, and number two, take responsibility, and number three, have the ability to change that. Now, The employee, on the other hand, will only be open to any of that if this is a real leader and if it is a real team. Otherwise, they will hear the comments, they know they're being managed, and they will start looking for a new job. So it's a hard thing to deliver negative feedback and harder to deal with it. (laughs) So that is from built-in patterns, going back to the pattern thing. Yeah. It's also a word choice. For example, I grew up 
learning the difference between constructive criticism and a critique. And so I appreciate, and I'm so grateful for my mother for that, I appreciate constructive criticism. So if I turn in a book to the publisher and the publisher says, yeah, we sort of like the content, but you know, the word choices, here are some suggestions on what you may want to do. To me, that is constructive criticism. So they're trying to help me get better. And I think that might also be my background as a former college teacher, always trying to criticize in a positive and constructive way. Unfortunately, a lot of times when people hear the word criticism or something of that sort, they're thinking the other person hates me. They don't like what I'm doing. That's again, that's cultural. It really is that if somebody comes to you and they want to help you get better, what they're doing is they're giving you the tools or at least the insight to help you be better as an individual, as, a, as an employee, as a CEO, whatever it may be. And, and we need to understand that that is good. We need to be self-confident enough to not let a bad report or a bad writing of a book impact us on a core level, but understanding that, yeah, maybe I screwed up a little bit, being accountable and going at it and changing it to make it even better. That's very different from people just telling you, I'm going to use this word, you just suck. You know, I hate everything that you're doing. How dare you? And they start screaming and yelling at you. But that is not constructive criticism. Really difficult. I think it's off leadership skill that is directly tied to cultural patterns as well as individual patterns. This has been really fascinating for me, and I've learned a lot. So a lot has to do with intent, right, and communicating intent, and then the idea of providing constructive help. I mean, this is what to think about, step one, step two, step three, and then here's some options. I'm not an expert manager, but I've certainly had my share of negative feedback (laughs) and dealing with it differently over the years. And so how do you deliver information quickly without hurting people's feelings, I guess, to maintain engagement and productivity? Yeah. And, you know, I think that goes back to understanding yourself, understanding the individual and respecting each other. It's all in the way that you approach the other person. If a leader knows a little bit about the employee, the leader knows how to approach the employee and deliver that message. If they don't and or they just don't care because the leader, her or himself, is completely insecure and they don't want to get yelled at by the CEO or whatever it may be, there's all this background stuff. But in a functioning leadership team connection, The leader knows how to deliver the messages because they know the individual a little bit. And the individual trusts the leader enough to take it in and to understand where it's coming from. So again, it goes back to really understanding yourself, knowing your worth, knowing your value to yourself and the community and the team, and then being able just to... um, Respect the other person for what they're trying to do as well. And it all really, it's just a matter of changing the atmosphere and the connections 
the way we deal with each other in any kind of setting, but especially in the corporate setting where very often that human aspect has just been forgotten. Doctor, I really appreciate your time and your feedback <laughs> and, the, and the conversation here. We need to go into this very deeply <laughs> when, we, when we have you at our conferences. And I look forward to your, your next book. But sum up, if you can, without getting into politics now, because mm-hmm. obviously we, we have a situation in this country that is exactly about what we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. So how should people think about learning how to be resilient, not resistant, but because that's another story, but mm-hmm. res- resilient. In my view, I, you know, I think we're in society and probably in some companies, we're at, almost at an inflection point in many respects where conversation is becoming harsh, too harsh, and there's just too many moving parts and doesn't seem to, and I'm sure in some companies this is what's causing people to leave because people leave their boss, they don't leave the company. So how do people develop resilience from this train of thought that we're talking about, you know, considering individual lives and patterns? Is there a general way to think about being better, more resilient to things that you don't like? I suppose yes. And what I mean by that is when an individual is able to decipher his or her main priorities, and live up to them with their own values, then it is much easier to be resilient because we begin to understand that the job is good, pays the bills, it allows me to do what I need to do afterwards, and accepting that my manager is just completely out there and has no clue what he or she is doing. So I will do my work the best I can, and whenever that manager gets upset, I fully understand that that is his or her issue. It's really not about me, because if it was about me, the communication would be different. So resilience to me is knowing who you are, your strengths and your your weaknesses, and understanding why are you where you are in relation to a workplace? Why are you there? And what are you trying to deliver while you're there? Your performance at your job is not predicated or determined by the other people around you. It's your standard. And that been, really makes you resilient. Yeah, thank you. We've been talking with Natalie Forrest, Dr. Natalie Forrest, international speaker. She's one of a kind, a revolutionary speaker, sure to positively impact your life. She's also the executive director of the Women of Global Change and CEO and founder of her own business, Natalie Forrest International. And you could check it out on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash Natalie Forrest. And Natalie, what is your website? Where can people find out stuff about you on the web? Oh, the web is very simple. It's my name. It's Natalie Forrest. And I'm consistently working on the webpage, but natalieforrest.com is the easiest way to find me. Thank you for asking. Yeah, thank you for being our guest today, a very special guest today on Global Radio Talk Show, a 
broadcast service of globalbusinessnews.net. I want to say that Dr. Forrest is speaking at our Washington Beltway conference on January 30. And are you still uh, interested in uh, speaking in, in Europe, in Brussels? Absolutely. Stuttgart and Brussels is on my itinerary, yes. Stuttgart, April 1, Brussels, April 3. So come on, join the caravan, the road trip of <laughs> Global <Yeah>. HR News. <laughs> It'll be a and fun road trip. <laughs> thank you so much. This is great. See you thank next you. week. Thank you so much. Okay, this is Ed Cohen, your broadcast host again from Global Radio Talk Show, signing off from San Diego, California. Dr. Forrest called in today from the East Coast, from the Baltimore area. Thank you so much again. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful day.